Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows if elections are to mean anything, they gotta be in the hands of the people. Today we have Laura and Kellen. And today we are interviewing Rebecca Parson, a queer democratic socialist and tenants rights organizer running for Congress in a solidly blue working class district. She's challenging Derek Kilmer, the ninth most conservative House Dem and chair of the centrist New Dems Coalition. Rebecca is the first woman and first member of the queer community to ever run for the seat and recently got endorsed by the People's Policy Project and Our Revolution Washington. Welcome, Rebecca. Yay. Hey, thanks for having me on. Excited. <laughs> yes, we're excited to ha- have you excited to, I mean, like all of us on Season of the Bitch identify as queer in some form. So we're always like happy to not only be speaking to other women, but be speaking to queer women. So it's really nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Rebecca, what encouraged you to run for office? Well, I thought that if, uh, Donald Trump could get elected president and just by virtue of being a rich asshole, then I could also (laughs) run for something. And I wasn't sure what it would be, but I thought that that would be a useful way to serve my community. And so I just kind of had that in the back of my mind starting in about 2016. After the election, I got involved uh, with Indivisible Tacoma Anybody who's not familiar, Indivisible is a group that started after the election. It was the Indivisible Guide was written by some former Capitol Hill staffers about using the Tea Party tactics to uh, fight Trump's agenda. And I learned a lot of great stuff there and led led that group for about co-led it for about a year and a half. And then I moved on to um, other groups like Tenants Rights Organizing. I joined my local DSA chapter and it's just been really exciting being involved in that stuff. And through being involved with, you know, Indivisible, which involves a lot of contacting your member of Congress, and then also DSA, Tenants Rights Organizing, interacting with the local city council, I got really frustrated seeing elected officials not responding. You know, you go to town hall and it's just a talking points and slideshow where questions are asked, but they may or may not be answered because our congressman came with a pre-written list of answers he wanted to give. Mm. And so he just gives those answers whether or not they match the questions. <laughs> and it's pretty frustrating being there for that. And uh, just the kind of general attitude of, well, hands are tied. There's only so much we can do. You know, I remember going to my first town hall after the election, and it was with Derek Kilmer, who I'm now running against. And Everybody in the audience was scared and wondering what was going to happen and not knowing what our country was going to become and hoping that he would be able to tell us he was going to be able to do something. You know, we knew that their power was limited, but just something that you're going to do to help us and and just make this a less scary four years or, you know, less if impeachment comes through. And instead, he just had a slideshow with a bunch of statistics and facts and was talking about really wonky stuff. It's like, I cannot believe that Donald Trump is president. He just got elected and we're just sitting here looking at your flowchart presentation on PowerPoint. Like everything's normal. It's just maddening. And then uh, I started thinking about somebody nominated me to a brand new Congress. And I started thinking about running It was a big step to go from, I think I might run for something to I'm going to run for Congress, not having run for anything before. And um, I spent a few months going around the district, which is really large. 
and talking to people about their issues and trying to figure out if it's possible because I'm, I only wanted to run if I thought I could win. And so I did that for a few months and just became convinced that it was the right thing to do and that somebody pro- really progressive needs to run against him. Yeah, there's no better demonstration of like elections and most elected officials and especially all the elected officials we've seen historically in the United States, like being a pawn in the capitalist game for like the day after Trump was elected, this dude coming up with a like PowerPoint. I don't yeah, know. Exactly. It's like, that's like, we're in a dark timeline in some ways. Like that is, that's for like, that just like hits. I don't know. It's like office space meets uh, like, a post-apocalyptic Hunger Games type shit where it's like the people in the Capitol are just like, everything's fine. And we're like, what are you talking about? Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Or like The Office. Like, are you Michael Scott? What are you talking about? A reality show fascist is leading our country and you're talking about GDP charts. Like, what? Right. Like, (laughs) and it's not like, I mean, it's complicated, right? Because I feel like then we also have the people who we talk to that are like, on the lib end of things and they're like it's all about Trump it's all about Trump and it's like Ugh, okay but it's also not all about Trump like there's these systems of oppression so it's like he's just mm-hmm. completely missing the mark on all ends of it <laughs> yeah. just like yeah totally yeah um so speaking of him uh your opponent Kilmer uh has voted to cut food stamps for 1.7 million people Refused. Ew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gross. Yeah. Just keep going. I'm going to boo everything yeah, he's Yeah, just boo it all. Uh, <laughs> just for effect. Go ahead. Refused to support the Green New Deal. Boo. Or Medicare for all. Boo. Uh, in a district threatened by rising sea level and an addiction epidemic. Um, boo. He also... Oh, I don't know if I was supposed to do that. Keep going. I mean, like, we understand addiction is, is an illness. We're not booing. We, no, we're booing no. him, not you. Not yeah, anyone suffering from addiction. Um, and booing rising sea levels. Yes, exactly. Yes, continue. Uh, he voted to fast track the TPP or Trans-Pacific Partnership, which if no. y'all aren't familiar, is essentially like a ratcheted up version of NAFTA. Um, so what happened in 1992 with Bill Clinton and like all the fucking bullshit free trade that wreaked havoc on um, Mexican farmers and things like that. The same thing is uh, happening uh, between the United States and um, a bunch of countries on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, okay, yeah, he also co-sponsored the anti-BDS bill. So if you're not familiar, BDS, uh, Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions, it's um, often, well, right now it's a movement in solidarity with Palestinians and folks who are experiencing the occupation of Palestine by the Israeli government. Um, and so he's he's sponsoring essentially uh, an alignment with the continued alignment with the Israeli government. Ew. <laughs> Not even done. <laughs> <It's a> yet. <laughs> uh, he's taken two million corporate cash dollars per cycle. And funneled Ew. that money back um, into the like democratic corporate leadership um, and other corporate Dems. Uh, 
<laughs> so essentially, he's just like, he's the, the Democrat we love to hate. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, of course, we're disgusted with his background. Uh, and uh, we're so glad that, to see you running against him. Um, what, I guess, has been your experience trying to combat uh, this kind of mainstream party like what what have you been doing in terms of like tactics as well as like what's been setting your campaign um separate from the mainstream well in terms of the party they are not happy that i'm running he's <laughs> kilmer's a prodigious fundraiser and then he gives that money out to the DCCC, to other centrists uh, other centrist democrats to the state party and local legislative district and county parties in my district and the state chair decided that to deny me access to Van Voter Access Network, which is the tool that all Democrats use for canvassing and phone banking. Uh, and it's really critical wow. to have because, yeah, <laughs> even though I'm a Democrat, you know, I have a lot of issues with the Democratic Party, but I am involved with my local legislative uh, district Democrats. And I even chaired a committee last year. I'm a precinct committee officer. So, you know, they can't accuse me of being not a real Democrat. <laughs> and uh, I actually hew more closely to the Washington State Democratic Party platform than he does. You know, the, the state party platform calls for single payer health care. It's actually very progressive what the Democrats officially call for in Washington State. Mm. But then they don't hold their representatives to account. So I've been denied <laughs> access to that tool. Yeah. And it's really important for canvassing, but it also has a lot of data in it. You know, what you can get from the state is the raw voter file, and that just comes with people's names. Whatever information they used, they gave when they registered to vote, which could have been 10 years ago. So numbers will be out of date, addresses will be out of date. And the state party, you know, through campaigning and everything, they update that. So it has much more up-to-date data and information about people. So they denied me access to that. And they, the DCCC ban, which for anyone who hasn't heard, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, has put out their head, Sherry Bustos, decided to put out a blacklist so that any consultant or agency or vendor that a, consult, a, can, a candidate like me might work with is blacklisted. They, they cannot work with somebody like me. And if they do, they will be blacklisted from working with any of the DCCC candidates, which is basically almost every Democrat in Congress in the House. Ugh. So it Can would you remind really, us what uh, DCCC stands for? Yeah, it's the D uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Right. Uh, so right, right, right. it's the House group of Democrats that works to get them elected. They run a lot of polling. I've seen some internal memos, like they'll run a poll on what voters think about impeachment and then they'll send it out to all their members, you know, mm. um, after Nancy Pelosi uh, grants them permission to call for impeachment or whatever, <laughs> then they'll do, they'll do polling on a subject and then send out the polling, like here are your talking points and they help them get reelected and do fundraisers. And um, they also have to commit to, they have some kind of point system. It's almost like working for a corporation where they're like, you know, go to the doctor so many times or, you know, put on this tracker. And if you walk around the block 10 times, we'll give you a gummy bear or whatever. So <laughs> spend less on your health insurance. And uh, it's that the DCCC is kind of like that. If you raise this amount, then you get like a, a call with this special person. And if you raise this amount, you get, um, I don't know, like you get to go to Hamilton with Hillary Clinton or whatever. Oh, my and, God. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a punishment, not a reward. Exactly. Yeah. And. 
they uh, had so this blacklist, you know, any consultant or agency strategist, if they worked with me, they would then be on a blacklist and not be able to work with most of the Democrats in the House. Mm-hmm. And that's affecting me here. Even, you know, Tacoma, Washington's not, you know, an epicenter of political activity. And mm-hmm. it was just very surreal to be sitting in a coffee shop in Tacoma and meeting with this great organizer across the table from me who was recommended. So we met. And she said, you know, when you texted me, I kind of knew that you wanted to talk about me possibly working on your campaign. And I just wanted to meet in person to tell you because um, I like your platform and I myself, ident- I'm a democratic socialist, but I work for an agency that has an incumbent Democrat as a client. And Nancy Pelosi told all the Dems that because of the DCCC blacklist, um, they are not allowed to work with any agency that works with a challenger. What? Yeah. Democracy, <laughs> everyone. <laughs> Literally, Laura, that's like what I was about to say. Um, Laura and I share a brain. It's just like in case anybody had any doubts about the fact that like the Democratic Party is a deeply undemocratic uh, organization. Yeah, I mean, it's not um, it's not surprising what you're telling us right now, but it, it is like deeply disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm so sorry that you're dealing with all of this as you like try to participate in the democratic process. Yeah. And it's, you know, I asked her, well, could you just work for me on the side? And she said, no, all political work I do has to go through my agency. So she was blocked off. And it's just incredible how far the tentacles reach. You know, this decision was made by Cherry Bustos and Nancy Pelosi in Washington, D.C. and thousands of miles away in Tacoma, Washington. It's affecting my ability to hire staff. And it's, yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of some of the party stuff that's going on. But um, you know, luckily there's a network of progressives across the district who all found each other because of Bernie's campaign in the last cycle. And they've been, you know, we've all been networking together and getting to know each other and building infrastructure for this kind of run. And so I have a network of people across the district who really want Kilmer out. And for the people who don't pay attention to politics because, you know, they're working, they don't have time. Uh, when I talk to them and I tell them, you know, first of all, many people haven't heard of, they don't know who the representative is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk to them and say what I stand for. And then they ask, well, who's in right now? Tell them about him and the money he's taken, the votes he's taken. And they're convinced to vote for me. So it does take, it takes a lot of conversations. And we have a really ambitious uh, target and, and field plan. We have about eight months until the primary. And we're just mm-hmm. going to have to have a ton of those conversations and, Um, And then back quickly to the app issue, like being denied access to the app and the data. Um, One of the really nice things about the last few years is that the progressive movement electorally has been building a lot. You know, there's other apps I can use, other data. Uh, I was just endorsed recently by Brand New Congress, and they have a ton of volunteers that they connect me with who are helping me do data analysis and targeting and creating my field plan. And then on Twitter, there's just tons of people who want to help out leftist candidates. Um, There's tons of YouTube shows. I mean, it's just amazing all of this stuff that's building up so we can build these power structures apart from the Democratic Party. Well, and it's like we have to because like every I mean, as you're describing and, and, you know, when we have talked to other candidates, both that were running and also folks after they got elected, just seeing how like the dark, the, it's almost like the dark web, but it's like 
the politics of it. It's like it, yeah. the more you know, the more you're just like unnerved by it. And all of us that have been involved in leftist organizing for a while have understood the need to kind of create these these completely separate entities. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about like what you're campaigning on. Um, so you support Medicare for all, a living wage, a jobs guarantee, the Green New Deal and national rent control, um, which is the opposite of all the booing that I did earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how all those things go together and why they're so important. And for me, the top three are, are what you just listed, you know, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, including a federal jobs guarantee and a housing policy that includes national rent control. And then national rent control kind of sets the limit. Rents can only rise so much, but then we also need to supply the bottom. You know, there's a severe shortage of housing. And then um, through connecting with the Homes Guarantee Coalition, that's uh, what my housing policy is heavily based on and what Bernie's was heavily based on as well is uh, calling for 12 million new units of social housing in the next 10 years. So with uh, rent control, you kind of set the cap. And then with the new influx of social housing units, you fill in the bottom, the supply side. And it's really the opposite of what most people talk about, supply and demand, which means that just naturally we have to give tax breaks to developers because that's the only way they're going to ever build here. It's like, well, no, screw you. <laughs> We're going to social housing. And um, so housing is really critical. My district is in the northwestern tip of Washington state and includes Tacoma, which is about 40 minutes south of Seattle, and then the Olympic Peninsula, including the northwesternmost tip of the continental United States. And it's a beautiful area. It's very diverse. You know, we've got um, Tacoma's urban. It's very, it's pretty dense. And then we've got the Olympic Peninsula, which is rural and has a like, beautiful giant uh, national forest and national park in the middle of it. And so it's very different, you know, the Olympic Peninsula versus Tacoma versus other parts of the district. But going around and talking to people, we have the same top three most pressing issues. One is um, not enough housing and housing costs are rising. And in Tacoma, we talk a lot about gentrification. Mm -hmm. On the peninsula, they just talk about rich assholes from Seattle and California <laughs> uh, retiring there. Um, but it's the same thing. People coming in and causing rents and housing prices to rise. And then they're not being just enough, you know, so people have to move further and further out. And um, then a severe shortage of jobs and the jobs that are there are not good. You know, Washington state is a one of the most unionized states in the country, but we still have a severe lack of union jobs, especially compared to what we used to have. On the Olympic Peninsula, for example, um, the logging industry used to be big. And after the post-war boom, or during the post-war boom in the 50s, the forests on the Olympic Peninsula supplied the boards that built most of the houses across the country in mm. that post-war construction boom. And then after big companies like Warehouser logged all they were legally allowed to, um, the industry collapsed and it just left a gaping hole where jobs used to be and nothing filled in. So there's people really struggling to get by. They can't get a job. Jobs they can get don't pay enough. And I have a friend um, who's running for the state legislature, Mariana Hopkins Everson, who says, if a community could have PTSD, this is what it would look like. And she's mm. a nurse. And mm. she said, it's like the entire community has PTSD and um, pervasive despair. And um, that's where, and the despair shows up in addiction, suicide, um, just like violence. Um, you just, it's very pervasive. And 
that's where Medicare for all comes in as well, because something that uh, people don't talk about with the addiction epidemic is, um, okay, like, yes, the opioid epidemic is a problem. Addiction is a problem. But how are you going to treat all these people? Mm -hmm. And the answer is Medicare for all, including Mm -hmm. addiction treatment. Yeah. And uh, like in Grace Arbor County, which is on the Olympic Peninsula, um, there isn't a single facility in the entire county that um, offers addiction treatment for people on Medicare. And wow. so they just have nowhere to go. Yeah. Oh and there's a pastor there who works with um, people in a homeless encampment there. So Aberdeen is in Grace Harbor. It's where Kurt Cobain was from. And the town has 16,000 people. A thousand of them are homeless. Wow. And yeah, it's just staggering the scale of the problem. And this pastor works with people who were living in a riverside encampment, and they had been living there some for 10 or 20 years. And she has tattooed on her arms the uh, initials of everybody who died waiting in line for treatment. And they had, yeah, they had on November 2nd a uh, celebration. I always get the days confused also. It was All Souls Day, mm-hmm. I think, and that's the day where you celebrate everyone who died in the past year. And she, um, they had that cel- that memorial for people who had died on the streets in the past year. Mm. And I went to that, and she would point to each person's photo, which had a candle burning in front of it, and say, "Yeah, this person uh, was running away from the cops, jumped into a river, into the river to get away from them, and drowned. This person was squatting in a house, and it burned down on him." Um, this person, I went to ID him at the morgue with his mother. And while we were at the morgue is when I got the call from the county saying they were finally going to start offering, um, allowing Suboxone in the county. And he died of an OD. Yeah. Suboxone would have saved his life. And that's the thing is like, and it's the same in Tacoma. Um, we, there's one detox facility in the entire city that takes state healthcare, Medicare, and uh, I tried to get a friend in there who's been trying, who had been trying to get sober for a while, and they didn't have room. And the only way you get in is every day at midnight you call and you try to get on the wait list, and they usually um, aren't able to get you in. And then I called the hospitals and said, Could, "Will you detox her?" They said no. Called a friend of mine, said, "Well, yeah, that's what they'll say if you call, but if you just show up, they have to take her." So I took her there, but they only kept her overnight. And Mm. I mean, her blood alcohol level was 0.34 and 0.4 is lethal. So she's very close to lethal. And detox, you know, from alcohol, if it's not done medically, depending on how advanced the person's disease is and how dependent their body is on it, can be lethal. And they need three-day treatment. The hospital just kept her overnight and then released her. And then took her two weeks to get into a long-term treatment facility. And so that's the thing that's really missing you know, a lot of politicians talk a good game about addiction and it's like Medicare for all is the solution. (laughs) If you want, it's one of the solutions. And the other is really needing to have policy that addresses the despair people feel Mm -hmm. when people cannot support themselves and their family and feel they have nothing left to live for, then it becomes very tempting to check out with drugs or alcohol. And so that's part of what a jobs guarantee addresses as well is a good life. And you can have a union job with a living wage, working 40 hours a week that supports you and your family. You get vacation every year. You're not working all the time. And you actually have a life to look forward to. And so that's really important, the jobs guarantee. Um, And then housing as well. Like, I mean, there are college students living in their cars. It's just abominable. And 
So for me, those three issues really go together in terms of an anti-despair program, which is what I think we need in the district and also in the country as well. And they also interplay in really interesting ways. So you have, let's say we're going to build 12 million new units of social housing in the next 10 years. Well, we want to make sure they're all uh, decarbonized and they're carbon neutral so that that's where the Green New Deal comes in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then who's going to build all of this housing? Well, that would be part of the federal jobs guarantee. Uh, a lot of those jobs would be construction jobs, building this housing. And then let's say Medicare for all, you no longer have health care dependent on your employer. So somebody comes in and they work construction with a federal jobs guarantee for a year, and maybe they do some training and then they get a different job um, because they're guaranteed one through the federal jobs guarantee. Their health insurance doesn't change and their health in, the health insurance isn't even factored into their decision. They can just make a decision on what's best for them and their family. And they can also stay where they are, something that's not appreciated by the wonks in the Democratic Party who think they're smarter than everybody. It's like, well, um, just move. Well, you know what? A lot of people don't want to move. They don't want to live in Seattle or uh, D.C. or any of the big cities. They grew up on the Olympic Peninsula. They want to live in the Olympic Peninsula. And they want to die on the Olympic Peninsula. And if they want to do that, they should be able to. And the way they do that is by getting a job right where they live and not having to relocate. Um, and that's part of the federal jobs guarantee as well. Another big issue with Medicare for all is rural hospitals mm. on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, rural, like rural hospitals are closing, they're downsizing, reimbursements from uh, Medicaid aren't enough. And it's really also, um, I've spoken with um, Paige Kreisman, who's a DSA member, openly trans. She's the first uh, trans person to run for the Oregon State Legislature. Mm. And um, she's in Portland, which is only about two and a half hours away from me. So we went and did a live together there a while ago. And I asked her about Medicare for All in terms of um, trans healthcare issues. And she said that Medicare for All is absolutely a trans rights issue, um, both because you want trans people to be able to get gender affirmation surgery, gender confirmation surgery. Um, and then also all the healthcare issues that a trans person needs that have Um, that anybody who's not trans also needs. Um, And in rural areas, it's a big issue because some of the only hospitals, in some areas, the only hospital left is a religious hospital and they discriminate against trans people. Right. Yeah. And so if they want to get gender confirmation surgery, that's hard enough. But if they just want to get treated for the flu and, um, you know, their ID says their old name and not their new name and they go in and the person can tell their trans, you know, they can be discriminated against. Right. And so it's a really big issue as well. Medicare for all in my district. Mm. I, I mean, I'm about to, I was like, I love the way you describe this. And I, that's a weird way to phrase what I'm about to say because it's terrible, but it resonates with me so hard. And I've never heard someone explain it this way, but the way that you described the despair factor, Mm -hmm. um, I, I've been talking to some people who live in Canada or live in other areas of the world, different countries, and I live in Buffalo. I'm literally two miles away from Canada, so <laughs> I think about this all the time, but I mean, like, obviously, the the solution is not running away from it, but I think about how oppressive living in the United States feels, and it's hard to describe to people because we have such such deep lack of social safety nets and guarantees to us as human rights. Um, And so many other countries don't real people who live in other countries don't realize how completely despairing it can feel to, to be in this place and be here. And, you know, 
most of us um, in this show are like either in um, the millennial uh, cohort or the Gen X cohort. And both of those, I feel like, are the the folks who are just like, well, <laughs> we were handed this situation and now we're supposed to have viable jobs that that can sustain us for our lives. And none of us are having that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, at least yeah. like I, I think I might know like one person who feels like they're getting paid a fair wage. Um, but it's 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 hard and it's hard that that if you think about leaving your job or doing something or pursuing something, your health care is so tied to that. And then, of course, you know, the the environmental factor is huge. I'm, I used to live in Portland, Oregon, and I remember one of the main things we would be freaked out about were earthquakes. And I think it's even more intense in Washington because of where the fault lines are. And and these mm-hmm. are things that folks need to be paying attention to need to be paying attention to and um so glad to hear that you are (laughs) um so i know that you've spoken a little bit about this but i think i think you know in the way that you kind of also briefly mentioned like when people think about the national political landscape i don't think people's minds go directly to washington state um but what where do you think washington fits into the national conversation um, how do you feel like either like, where do you think Washington fits into the national conversation and what do you feel like you want to bring to DC on behalf of folks in Washington as well? That's a good question. And I do think that people don't immediately think of Washington when they're thinking about national politics. And I think that the way it fits in is that Washington state has a very progressive reputation but when you actually live here, you know, out of our house delegation for the whole state, I would say the only progressive is Pramila Jayapal. And the rest of them are hardcore centrists. And we even have one who belongs to the Blue Dogs, which is the most conservative Democratic caucus in the house. And then we have Derek Kilmer, who sometimes I call him king of the centrists because uh, the new Democratic coalition is um, the centrist, third way, near attendant type of caucus um, in Congress. It's the uh, Joe Crowley, who AOC defeated. Mm-hmm. He used to be chair of the New Democrats. And people from the outside see Washington State as so progressive, and it is in some ways. And, you know, I like really like being here as a queer person, uh, as a woman. Um, but in other ways, it's not very progressive. You know, we have a statewide ban on rent control, which was pushed by the real estate lobby years ago. And we have these Democrats representing us who won't come out for something as as simple as Medicare for all or the Green New Deal or building more housing for people. And they're just totally bought by corporations. And it's um, I think that's kind of where it fits in that we can show, you know, it's not enough just to have Democrats. They have to be Democrats working for the people who aren't taking corporate and lobbyist money. Because if it was just enough to have Democrats, the systemic issues that allowed Donald Trump to be president wouldn't have happened. You know, if it was enough to just have Democrats, then mass incarceration wouldn't have ballooned under Bill Clinton. And we see that with Washington state. Like, look, we have all these Democrats. So why are people dying on the streets? (laughs) Because they're not working for us. They're not doing enough. 
they're milk toast. They need to, we need people with stiff spines to come in and say, I'm not going to take this money. I'm going to serve the people. Uh, national rent control, if that sounds radical, then let's explain it to people so mm-hmm. that it, it makes sense. Like what this means is that your rent can't go from $800 to $1,600 from one month to the next. That's what national rent control means. Right. And then it sounds reasonable to people. So I think that's where Washington State can fit in. And then what I would want to bring to D.C. for my district is a focus on the regular people here in this district. Like, It's interesting because we're so close to Seattle, but we don't have anything like Amazon or Microsoft or any of the big tech companies here. It's really a blue-collar district. Um, there, We do have some tech companies in Tacoma, but we also have uh, one of the country's largest ports. Mm-hmm. It's a deep water port and it's a really big port on the West Coast. And we take in uh, shipments from all over Asia as well as Australia. So we have this big working port there, including the ILWU, which is one of the most radical unions in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them are my friends from DSA. And so we have that and we have, you know, a little bit left over from the logging industry. And we have a lot, there are a lot of tribes in my district as well, mm-hmm. um, mostly coastal tribes. And they're being severely impacted by climate change and rising sea levels. There's one village on the Olympic Peninsula that is a tribal village and it's having to be moved uphill, uh, upland, and it's costing over a million dollars to do it. And they're losing this place where they've lived forever and it's precious and sacred to them. They're having to leave it behind where it will be literally taken by the ocean. Mm. And um, there's another um, tribe, the Macaw Nation, which is on the very north westernmost tip of the peninsula and it's a beautiful area and you were talking about being in buffalo so close to canada like when you're there you look across the water and canada's right there across yeah. the water and <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh you know the macaw nation like so we do have and, and as you mentioned the earthquakes here mm-hmm. and with so much coastline the earthquakes and tsunamis and rising sea levels is just a total recipe for disaster yeah. and the macaw nation their school is in the tsunami zone mm-hmm. and currently their tsunami evacuation plan is if there's a tsunami all the kids are supposed to get out of their chairs and run a mile uphill like that's their plan is just to outrun a tsunami and it's ridiculous because they don't have enough money to move the school. They don't have enough money for a better tsunami evacuation plan. And I think that's what I would want to bring is for regular people in the district, you know, the people that, you know, Derek Kilmer is just so removed, you know, the amount of money he takes, the lobbyists, right. the, giant, the giant corporations. I mean, he even takes money from a pharmaceutical group who, <laughs> whose members manufactured the crisis that's ravaging our district like they mm-hmm. created those pills and then sent their drug reps out to peddle them knowing they were addictive and there's one county on the olympic peninsula which a uh, report in the newspaper found that 76 addictive pain pills were prescribed per person per year in that oh county God. and now they have yeah and now they have the highest opioid death rate in the state oh my God. and he took the money from the people who did that yeah and I would, yeah, that's, that's what I want to bring. And I, I don't know, so much is coming to my mind. You know, I have another friend who's been extremely active in um, pressuring our elected officials for Medicare for all. And then she wouldn't mind me sharing this. She asked everybody to share it is um, about a month ago, her husband had a massive heart attack and he had to get double bypass surgery. He's a diabetic and he went for years without insulin. And the doctor was a hundred percent certain 
that that was caused it. Like he wouldn't have had the heart attack without that because if diabetics go without insulin, it causes all these other cascading health effects. Right. And the reason he went without it was um, when he qualified to get assistance for Obamacare, he made too little to afford the insulin. So it was <sighs> only when, yeah, it was only when the, he became unemployed that he then um, got enough assistance to be able to afford the insulin. But because he was unemployed, it was devastating their family financially and they're losing everything. And it's just this stuck in this mean tested hellhole yeah. where uh, that's, that's means testing in action. I mean, that's like lack of insulin, lack of Medicare for all. And if he had been born across the water, it wouldn't have happened. Ugh. Do you, um, do you mind? Will, will you indulge me in a, in a small tangent? <laughs> sure. sure. Um, uh, so my undergrad work was in environmental studies and I did a lot of research on indigenous groups, uh, as they relate, like, as they relate to the modern, um, well, now it's been like a decade since then, so I don't know what we're considering modern, but, you know, into the, the current dialogue of environmentalism and, uh, the macaw are such a specific, uh, story, I guess, among like environmentalists because a bunch of environmentalists went nuts when the macaw were doing what they've done for thousands of years um, and they have a really special relationship to the gray whale, all these things. And I just wanted to remind people that if your environmentalism does not include indigenous groups and just steamrolls over these traditions and things like that, like your environmentalism is not good. And so I just like there yeah. are posters and things like that that were like, save a whale, kill a macaw. It's awful, oh awful, gosh. awful stuff. Um, there's like a bunch of documentaries and documents on it. And anyway, I, I just think like this group, I mean, all indigenous groups have obviously been through the ringer and they constantly are the frontline communities of climate change. But to be like on the receiving end of backlash from environmentalists and then also be at the frontline community, as you were saying, um, to just like watch out for tsunamis and and have to run uphill because of that, like that's it's so um, disgusting. Uh, and I think any of us who are white need to like really understand our role as colonialists and uh have this like awareness of this increasing pressure that's going to continue to happen on these frontline communities yeah absolutely and i mean people should consider the fact that it's not the macaw um going out and using their traditional yeah. vessels and traditional hunting tools that caused the whaling crisis it's yes. you mm. assholes yes exactly and uh <laughs> it's like you they they did not cause the oceans to be depleted of orcas you right. know and it's part of their culture and the macaw in particular um but i went to their they have an annual celebration called macaw days and somebody gave me a sweatshirt and it says since time immemorial on it and that's literally true they have archaeological evidence that they've been there for thousands of years like yeah. before the roman empire existed yeah. they were there and this is their traditional lifestyle and yeah for like especially white environmentalists to go after them i mean <laughs> just drives me nuts yeah. drives me nuts yeah. but anyway yeah. sorry i didn't mean to like go away from what you were saying but i was just like as soon as you mentioned them and all of the environmental stuff i was like we got to talk about it <laughs> yeah definitely what another thing that um 
I wanted to ask you about is sort of a, a real meta question, I guess. Um, but obviously, you know, there have been a lot of debates on the left about the, what the role of elections should be in the movement for democratic socialism. Um, and I was wondering sort of where you fall on that as somebody who is running for, um, for congressional office. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something I've talked about with people in my DSA chapter when I was thinking about winning. And um, there are people in DSA and in my chapter and nationally who don't believe that electoral politics is the way to go and the way that we can get real change and power. And, uh, you know, there's a saying that people like to say the Democratic Party is the, what is it, graveyard of social movements. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there are people who, who have that opinion. And my opinion is that most of, you know, many politicians who go in promising change, maybe some of them cynically, maybe some of them honestly, they get corrupted and they get sucked in by the system. And AOC said something about this recently, I can't remember where, but saying that, you know, it's hard to hold the line uh, when you're in Congress because you get it from all sides, like the leadership, um, the lobbyists, you know, every, you know, you'll go to a I think they have a freshman orientation It's and the, it's paid for by lobbyists. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. on all sides, so much pressure. Be a team player and go along to get along and be nice and all of that. And so I think it's a valid concern that people have. Um, but then we see people like Bernie Sanders, who he did keep the flame alive. And I've asked people, um, I was in D.C. for the Bernie Congress Candidate Summit and some of us call it Congress camp. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to people who they're like, how do you, how did Bernie Sanders do that? I mean, there's videos of him alone on the house floor talking, just speaking the truth and saying how things should be. And nobody is listening to him. And the only reason we have it is because C-SPAN records everything. Mm-hmm. And how did he do that? And, uh, but he did. And AOC coming in, and as Nancy Pelosi derisively pointed out, the squad, the quote-unquote squad, it's four people, they have four votes. Mm-hmm. Yet they've had such an outsized influence. And so the bully pulpit is powerful. Just being there speaking truth is powerful. Right. And then also having a caucus. You know, there's a progressive caucus in Congress, but there are people who belong to the progressive caucus and the new Democrat caucus. I'm like, if that is the case, then the word progressive has ceased to have meaning for you. <laughs> right, <laughs> you, right. You cannot be in both and still be a progressive because for me, progressive and, you know, progressive is starting to be used just as willy nilly as liberal. But for me, it's not taking corporate money and it's Medicare for all. And for me in particular, it's democratic socialist policies. And so we've seen stuff that the outsized influence the squad has been able to have. And with more people in there, like let's say 10, 15, 20 people who are true progressives, whether they're democratic socialists or not, they at least, they don't take corporate money, they support single payer, the Green New Deal, rent control, and um, forming, coming together and using their powers as a group, I think can have really a, a huge impact. And that's not to downplay the other sides of, or the other parts of organizing. So labor organizing in particular, we have, um, like really amazing union organizing in this area in Tacoma, and then also tenants' rights and housing organizing, which uh, I went to the as a delegate to the DSA convention for my chapter and met people who are working on housing rights across the country. And it seems that a lot of DSA chapters are working on housing, act, um, housing organizing. 
And I've been involved with that here in Tacoma. And that's critical as well. Like there's no point in getting people elected and not also having union organizing, tenants organizing. Um, I know some other chapters do the, uh, the mutual aid. Like there's no point in having only one. Like let's say we have uh, only union organizing, but then we have a Congress full of corporate assholes who refuse to listen to the unions. You know, or we have this great, uh, we get all these great candidates elected, but there's nobody to hold them accountable. It, it all needs to work together. And whichever one, I think people tend to gravitate gravitate towards one stream or another. And um, that's what I really like about DSA is like you have these different paths you can go into and they support each other. Um, you know, I, I've seen it in my own chapter, like the electoral work. And it, some, it's a, I think the divide between movement work and electoral work is not, it's a false divide and the two can help each other. And I've seen it happen. So that, I mean, that leads me to another question, which is, you know, if, if you are elected, how would you use your position to encourage change outside the legislative system? I think one could be things like what AOC did going to the protests outside of Pelosi's office. Mm. Uh, it can also be going uh, what stuff like what Bernie Sanders has done, uh, emailing and texting his supporters to support um, people on strike. And I think one as well can be um, like in, let's say, labor organizing, tenants organizing relationships are hugely important and you know, you can't organize a workplace without relationships and trust, but the same is true in politics. And I think that um, what politicians who are inside the system can do is if they still are tied with and have connections with the movements outside, you know, quote unquote, outside the system, they can say, well, um, you might try talking to this person's policy staffer because they're open. And then you have a coffee with that person's policy staffer and you get a foot in the door and then you start to build, what they can do is help build those relationships and say, you know, and unfortunately, you know, some elected officials, they're not going to come out full-throated in support of something, even though they want to. And, but they will still try to find other ways to support. For myself, I, you know, I would like to be on the, the hard line of like, I support single payer, you know, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, national rent control, and really come out strongly full-throated for those things. But I recognize that some people um, in Congress and elected officials, they're not going to, they're just not going to do it. <laughs> and, but they may still support it. And so then I can help, um, help with that kind of insight for people who are looking for, uh, who they can lobby, that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's one way that I could help. That makes total sense. Um, I know we are, we're starting to get towards the end of our conversation. Um, so, uh, I think, Laura and I probably just have a couple more questions we wanted to ask. Um, the last one that I had um, was about the fact that you're openly queer. And I wanted to know, like, do you, first of all, do you feel like that's affected for better or for worse the way that voters perceive you? And also, like, has your being queer affected the way that you understand and practice politics? Yeah, it's definitely, I think it does affect how voters perceive me. Um, I've gotten feedback that the word queer um, turns people off in the more rural mm. parts of my district and mm. they don't like it. And, um, you know, I like queer because it's the most amorphous, you know, label yeah. that I could honestly use. And um, so I've decided, you know, I don't want to alienate people. And um, 
I'll say LGBT to describe myself in some areas Mm -hmm. and in some areas I'll say queer and that's just kind of a reality of of running and um, that's part of it and then in terms of um, how it makes me understand things one has been uh, in understanding trans rights issues so everybody when they meet me assumes I'm straight and um so it's like coming out you never it's not like you just come out and then you're done right <laughs> yeah. coming out every day. yes, yes. Um, it's like call the insurance company it's like my ex-wife needs to like she got her own insurance policy and needs to take it off that i just came out to the insurance agent mm-hmm. um like um that kind of thing and it happens every day and so to be constantly assumed and constantly coming out I tried to imagine, although I can never fully know because I'm not trans, I can try to imagine based on that, what would it feel like to be misgendered all the time? Right. Um, or what would it be like to um, be of one race, but have people always assume you're of another race? I, again, like I can't fully know. Um, it's impossible. But I can try to practice empathy and use my own experiences to try to understand these issues. Of course. Um, and that's helped. And um so that's been one way that I kind of view um, politics. And I think as well, it's, um, I think a lot of um, people in the Democratic Party assume that everyone in rural areas, they're just like redneck bigots. And it's just mm-hmm. not true. Like totally. uh, there's in in Aberdeen, a small town next to it, Hoquiam has a very vibrant drag scene. And there is no gay bar there. So a sports bar just stepped up and they've become the unofficial gay bar in that area. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. And they have drag shows there. And I, I went to one, I think it was for Halloween. And, uh, yeah, I was like, no, we're in a sports bar doing a drag show. It's great. And, um, like, the, the drag queens and kings there, um, every month they would do a potluck and bring food for people in the homeless camp. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's just... I think that's one like blessing as well of um, my district uh, being queer, being connected to LGBTQ people across the district is um, I get to see how vibrant just the LGBTQ community is. Um, So yeah, it's been really great. I, it's so funny when I, when I came out to my dad and I was like, after I came out to him and then was using the word queer, he was like, why are you using the word queer? Don't use that word. I don't want to say my daughter's queer. And I was like, dad, we, we took it back. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We took it back. Yeah. It's fine. But he still, he still won't refer to me in that way. And so it's interesting, even though he's like loving and accepting of me, how some people are very uncomfortable with that word. And so it's interesting uh, to hear you say that too, um, in in response to some of your your voter base and stuff like that, it's 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 been fun to like know. Well, at least with my dad, I'm like now I'm just pushing his buttons. But it's uh, <laughs> it's it is interesting yeah. that like you know if we've grown up in this space where it has been reclaimed and we do see it as this like more inclusive term to describe the LGBTQ community, um, I think that it's been really challenging for other people, especially if they want to put us into a box. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I think for people who grew up hearing it used as a slur and there's even one guy on my campaign who's gay and I sent him like a landing page I'd made to, you know, say I'm about to put it up and he changes. And it just said like the only text he could see before he started scrolling was like, Rebecca's a queer democratic socialist, something, something. And he's just like, (gasps) 
Rebecca's a queer. Who said that I need to punch somebody? And oh. <laughs> I think it's just it's a reaction. Like if people grew up with that, and so yeah, I, I prefer I prefer queer because there's no way to say you know it really fluctuates from day to day. Seventy two percent gay today, and yeah, tomorrow exactly. I may be fifteen percent straight. I don't know. Like, Relatable. Laura and I literally had this conversation earlier this week, so yeah. we're, we're totally on board with this. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so the last question I had, which is just for fun, but it's something that we do. Uh, we've been asking all of our guests, especially if they're running for political office, what is your astrology sign? <laughs> it's Capricorn yes so many so many politicians are Capricorns like oh really like if you look at like the presidents and people like there's they are actually I think one of the larger percentages of it and I think it's just because they like get shit done so (laughs) (laughs) one of our other hosts Zoe is a little bit biased against Capricorns but um it's good that she's not here to say anything my brother is a capricorn and i love him dearly and um you're on on, you're on a list of um another just another great capricorn we're so glad yeah julie we interviewed julia salazar and that's right she's a capricorn and she's a capricorn and she made it into office and is crushing it so we can't Mm -hmm. we can't say shit about it (laughs) yeah don't capricorns have a reputation for being kind of gloomy or pessimistic I think that the or I think the term that I see associated with them are like rigid and like really invested in rules and things like that, Um, Hmm. which is my mom is a Capricorn. And I would say that part I see in her. (laughs) But, But it's I think it can work like they're very, very driven. They're very, very driven people. So we need we need folks like you who are like ready to go and do do the work. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close out this interview? Yeah, I would say uh, if anybody has policy ideas, send them to me because I like getting them, especially from Democratic Socialists. And um, one a couple that I'm going to push for is one is. Uh, bringing the pharmaceutical industry into public ownership. Ooh, nice. So that, yeah, if the public owns it, I think they'll stop. Uh, to, uh, you know, if we own it, then there will be less of a chance of us, you know, spawning this nightmare industry that then kills us and uh, <laughs> keep it under control a little bit more. And um, that, yeah, that's the big one for me is bringing that industry into public ownership and then also public resources like water mm. because um, mm, stuff like and. Yeah. The Flint, you know, we have similar issues in my district. So those are the two big ones I can think of right now. But if people have other ideas, feel free to email me. Yeah. What's the best way to email you? Uh, Rebecca at Rebecca for WA.com. F-O-R. There you go. Um, Well, thank you so much for um, joining us. And we will definitely link to your campaign website um, and your handles and stuff like that. So folks can support you in those ways as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yay. All right. Well, um, that was an amazing interview. I'm so glad that we got the chance to talk with Rebecca Parson, Um, especially folks in Washington. You should check out her campaign, maybe get involved if you that kind of thing floats your boat. Um, 
if you want to get involved with supporting Season of the Bitch, as you may remember, we have a Patreon. Maybe some of you are listening to this episode early because you've supported us. Um, there are lots of other great things that come with Patreon support. We've got episodes that never become public that you can listen to. Laura does more astrology chatting. Um, mm-hmm. Lots of good stuff on Patreon. Um <laughs> You can also find us on Instagram. Um, we are on Twitter, both Instagram and Twitter, at Season of the Bee. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have a new merch rollout coming soon, so be on the lookout for that. Lots of great new designs. Um, and, yeah. Anything else you want to add, Laura? I fucking love you. Love you. <laughs> Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes if you love us. Yes. If you don't, keep your mouth shut and don't <laughs> If you don't get your shit together <laughs> oh wow okay love you so much you too bye, bye. Yeah. season of the bitch